Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. Committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck cancers with Dr. Benjamin Judson. Dr. Judson is a professor of surgery and otolaryngology and the chief of the division of otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Ben, you know, I always think about head and neck cancers as this kind of very large bucket of heterogeneous diseases. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you classify them, how you think about them? Well, I think your impression is actually on target. Um, head and neck cancers are make up about 4 to 5% of cancers in the United States. Uh, but when you really zone in on them, you know, so they're, they're, um, they're not common, but they're not rare either. And then when you really begin to uh, look more closely, they do, they are made up of a lot of different cancers in the mouth throat area. Uh, one of the phrases we use to describe it in the medical lingo is it's between the dura and the plura. So any cancer that's not brain cancer, but it's above the lungs sort of falls into that, that bucket of being a head and neck cancer. Yeah. And, and are there, are there any things that kind of make these similar? So when we think about risk factors, for example, of getting head and neck cancers, granted that all of these cancers are a little bit different, um, but are, do they share some of the same risk factors? Um, some of them do and some of them don't. <laughs> uh, some of the cancers we see in this area are just uh, don't have strong risk factors. They just sort of, you know, they're uncommon, but they, they can happen out of the blue without any um, sort of exposure. Um, that's probably a minority of the cancers in this area. Um, historically, the biggest risk factor has been smoking. Um, and, you know, with the decrease in smoking rates in the United States since World War II, we're beginning to see some slight decrease in the in the smoking related cancers but the big sort of change or the you know the big story in this area is the rise of cancers in the throat that are a result of infection with the human papilloma virus and and so um, I want to I want to dig into HPV in a minute, but I, I want to talk about a couple of other things before we get there. One is um, talk a little bit about alcohol. Um, you know, is alcohol a major risk factor for head and neck cancers? And if so, is there a quote safe amount of alcohol? It's a great question, and uh, I'm sighing a little bit because we don't. You know, some of this we don't know, but the, what we what we do know about the role of alcohol um, is that it has a synergistic role with tobacco. Um, so that if, you know, uh, alcohol is a risk factor, it's a low risk factor for developing uh, head and neck cancer. Um, smoking is a, is a larger risk factor, but if someone smokes and drinks, it isn't an additive effect. It's a multiplicative effect. Um, so that, uh, so that the, you know, if you smoke and drink, your risk is is significantly higher. So I guess the biggest role of alcohol is in people who smoke because it amplifies that risk of smoking. Um, you know, I, I think that although we say that alcohol is a risk factor for developing a head and neck cancer, 
a low level of alcohol, the risk of developing head and neck cancer with that is quite low. Okay. And, and my next question has to do with uh, race and ethnicity. Are, are there particular racial and ethnic groups that are more at risk? I know that I have sent you in the last year at least a number of people that I can think of off the top of my head who are of um, South Asian descent, um, which is a, which is a racial and ethnic group that we rarely think about um, uh, in this country. We we usually think about race in terms of African Americans, and we think about ethnicity in terms of Hispanic people. But um, if we think globally, are there particular racial and ethnic groups um, that are more at risk, or was I just having a disproportionate number of people who are South Asian who contact? me about any kind of cancers that they may have? Well, I think it, it's true and true. <laughs> um, overall, head and neck cancer is significantly more common in the rest of the world. And that probably has to do with tobacco and alcohol and um, betel nut exposure, um, which are higher elsewhere, especially in Asia. The other thing that's at, at play is that there is a particular type of head and neck cancer um, called nasopharyngeal cancer that is much more um, prevalent in parts of Asia, and it's related to uh, Epstein-Barr virus infection. Um, and, you know, we see when individuals from that part of the world um, move to the United States, their risk of developing those cancers goes down significantly, but not to the same level. And so we're sort of figuring out, like, is it, you know, it's unclear exactly how the risk factors work, but we do see different types of head and neck cancer more frequently in other parts of the world, like in Asia. And, and so that then brings me to this whole uh, virus um, uh, phenomenon, because now you've mentioned two viruses, uh, both of which are risk factors for various head and neck cancers, one being HPV and one being Epstein-Barr virus. And, you know, certainly right now uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, a lot of us have got viruses on the brain. Um Talk a little bit about uh, the differences between different viruses and, and how exactly these viruses um, cause cancer um, and what we can do about it. It's a great question. Particularly, I mean, the thing that we're seeing the most in the United States by far is this uh, rise in throat cancers that are caused by exposure to the human papillomavirus. And it's this has really been happening over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and it's still an emerging story. We're still learning more about what you know what's happening and how this works but we certainly know a lot <laughs> and and one of the key takeaways is that these are preventable cancers and they're preventable if an individual is vaccinated against the uh, human papillomavirus when they were younger now you know it's going to take 10 to 20 years for that to play out. You know, people, teens today are getting vaccinated, uh, uh, many of them, but not probably as many as we'd like in the United States. And that's going to prevent uh, these cancers in those individuals, you know, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, now, you know, when we think about HPV, and I think that um, many of our listeners may think about HPV and think about it being really primarily 
women um, for cervical cancer um, being sexually transmitted. They don't think about it as much, uh, perhaps, in all people of both genders um, in throat cancer. Um, so, so talk a little bit about, I mean, is this the same virus? Is it a different virus? Um, is it spread through uh, sexual means or, or or other means? Um, and what do you say to the people who say, you know, my child won't um, w- won't engage in oral sex and therefore will not uh, be at risk of HPV in their throat, and therefore, if not female, does not need to be vaccinated. Yes, uh, that's certainly a question that that people ask, for sure. Um, You know, what we know is that uh, human papillomavirus, so the the type of um, HPV that causes throat cancer is the same type that can cause cervical cancer in women. Um, And in the throat, it predominantly causes cancer in men. We don't know why that's the case. Um, What we've learned is that the vast majority of Americans are exposed to this virus at some point. Estimates put it in the 80 to 90% range. So almost all of us get exposed to the virus at some point. Um, usually we, our bodies clear the virus. Um, for some people, it, the virus hides out in the back of the throat and it sits there sort of evading our immune system for decades. And it's that exposure of sitting there that is a risk factor to develop, for developing a cancer um, later on. So I think, you know, the thought there is some evidence that suggests that people who are um, more act, more sexually active are at higher risk for developing um, these cancers. But I think anyone, just the vast majority, almost all Americans are exposed at some point. And so we do see these cancers in in everyone. And, and so, you know, this opens the, the question of vaccination. And, I, you know, I think that as we sit here um, in 2020, um, the remarkable year that it has been, um, it really uh, does bring to light the question of vaccination. And, you know, historically, there have been people uh, in this country who have been what would have been called anti-vaxxers who have concerns about autism um, due to vaccination. Now, perhaps there are more people who worry about how vaccines actually get approved in this country and and whether they're safe. Um, And so, you know, can you can you speak to that and really allay our listeners fears? Um, Because right now people might have all kinds of concerns with regards to not just the covid vaccine, but vaccines in general. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I think with HPV, we have the benefit of this not being a new vaccine. Um, there are over 120 million doses have been given in the United States, and I think it's now over 300 million doses across the world over the last decade plus. And it really, this is a safe vaccine. Um, it also is an effective vaccine. It it really eliminates 90 to 100 percent of the Um, infections and cancers that this virus can cause um, down the road. So I think, you know, I think the other, um, the other question is that comes up. So I think it's safe and it's effective. Um, And, you know, in the past, the rationale for getting the vaccine was to 
sometimes it was described as to avoid um, genital warts or things like that. And I think that there's not as great a perception or understanding that this is really a cancer prevention vaccine. And so there's some new survey data and studies going on that really shows that if people um, the more people appreciate that this cancer, that this vaccine has the potential and the ability to prevent cancers, um, those people are more likely to, you know, have their children vaccinated. Um, so I think that there is some work to do in this area to, you know, explain the benefits of the vaccine. Yeah, I, I think the other the other point that comes up is, um, you know, the fact that this cancer is not terribly common, as you said, it's not terribly rare, but it's not terribly common. And so, uh, and, and I'm playing devil's advocate here uh, for the benefit of our listeners who may have uh, similar concerns um, to really think about the, the risks of the vaccine versus the benefit in preventing a cancer that occurs in four to five percent of the population. Can you speak to um, the data with regards to autism, which is something that, you know, Jenny McCarthy and, and other figures uh, active in the anti-vax movement have really promulgated? Um, is there any truth to, to that? I think, you know, certainly not with the HPV vaccine. I mean, there's really been no, no signs whatsoever over hundreds of millions of people that, that there, that there is any association like that. I think that, you know, the data, um, that led to some of those claims has really been debunked as false data at this point for, for other vaccines. So I, I think that, um, you know, that's not really sort of up to date with where we are in terms of understanding the side effects. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that given its safety and the fact that it's been around for a long time um, and seems to almost completely eliminate um, cancer, whether it's cervical cancer for girls, um, head and neck cancers for both genders, um, reduce the risk of genital warts for what that's worth. But really, as you say, being a cancer vaccine is is really important. Um, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And when we return, we'll talk more about treatment and diagnosis for head and neck cancers with my guest, Dr. Ben Judson. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I am joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ben Judson. We're talking about patients with head and neck cancer. And right before the break, we were talking about the fact that HPV is actually a leading cause of a lot of uh, throat cancers that we see. 
And this is entirely preventable with the HPV vaccine. And now we talked a little bit about risks and benefits, and it seems to me that on balance, um, with millions and millions of doses being given over many, many years, um, we really do have the data that suggests that this vaccine is safe and effective. Um, But Ben, I wanted to kind of pick up there and ask who should be vaccinated um, and when? That's a terrific question. So the guidelines now are for... Uh, males and females who are under the age of 26 to be vaccinated. Um, Usually the recommendation is for the first uh, dose to be given when someone is around 11 or 12 years old with one second dose. Um, The the thought for that timing is that 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 vaccination then has time to sort of work before they're potentially exposed likely years down the road. Um, the, The change in this area has been that the CDC broaden the recommendation to consider vaccination for anyone up to 45 years old. Yeah, and I think that that's so important. But one of the one of the issues that I always ask is, you know, many of our listeners who may be uh, hearing this show may be saying, you know, I'm 47, I'm 48, I'm 52, I'm outside that window, um, you know, but I really want to get vaccinated because I'm not particularly keen on getting cancer. What do you do in that older population? Well, I think we don't, we don't know for sure the benefit um, in the, in that age group. I mean, we, 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 the benefit is overwhelming uh, in those that are under 26 in terms of preventing, you know, cancers and, and the, you know, the the issues or sequelae or side effects from treatment, as well as the risk of death. So that is for sure. I think in that group that are 27 to 45, now there is a suggestion that there's a real benefit there. Um, and so now that's why we have this sort of soft recommendation to consider vaccination in that age group. And we just don't know beyond that whether the size of the benefit to getting vaccination. And is the reason why we've kind of looked at those particular age ranges as being those are the age ranges where people are most likely to, um, you know, kind of uh, be sexually active. So so you would imagine that people who are in their 50s um, may have already come in contact with uh, the virus and therefore vaccination may be less effective. That is absolutely right. The idea is to vaccinate people before they could possibly be exposed to the virus. That's why it's as young as the recommendations are as young as they are for the initial uh, vaccination. And, you know, as it's less known as we get older and we're more likely, you know, as I mentioned, 80 to 90 percent of us have been exposed to the virus. The, the potential benefit of the vaccination later on is less, you know, less less understood or less known. Yeah. One one wonders, however, like, I mean, if you have people who have not been sexually active um, until their 50s, for example, maybe, you know, they were for religious reasons or other reasons um, really did not engage, um, but wanted to be vaccinated before they they started, um, whether that's something to consider. But it sounds like we're not there yet in terms of the data. It's. It sounds re- very reasonable, but we just don't know yet based on the data. Yeah. So so let's move to the 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 next uh, the next consequence, which is let's suppose you weren't vaccinated. Um, 
What are the signs and symptoms that you should look out for in terms of head and neck cancers? And I mean, we talked at the at the top of the show about this being a basket of really heterogeneous diseases, right? Um, uh, from the dura to the plura, as you put it. So um, I would imagine that there are so many uh, very varied um, symptoms that uh, could be signs um, of head and neck cancer. I think that's right. I mean, you know, one of the, the in some ways, so one of the pitfalls that we've seen is that with HPV-related cancers, it these cancers are arising in, in younger, otherwise very healthy individuals without real risk factors. Um, the vast majority of patients with an HPV-related cancer uh, present with a painless neck mass, uh, a, a physical lump in the neck that, that they can see or feel, and they otherwise feel fine. And so there's a little bit of a tendency to put that off, like, oh, you know, I feel fine. <laughs> and I'm, uh, you know, healthy, but, you know, incredibly potentially healthy young person, you know, living my life. And so, you know, they might not, someone might not seek um, medical care early with that. But that, you know, that is the leading presentation of this cancer. And so one of the things, you know, that one of our recommendations is that someone who has a, a, a mass in the neck, even if you otherwise feel great and have no other symptoms, and if it's there for more than four weeks, you know, you should see your, ask your physician about it, see someone about it. And Ben, what's the age range that uh, we typically see these cancers in? I mean, it, you mentioned, you know, if you're an otherwise healthy young person, um, are, are young people really the ones getting this disease or, or are they um, at lower risk? And this is really something that people should worry about when they're pushing into their 70s and 80s. Well, I think that the smoking, drinking related head and neck cancers that we saw happened most frequently in people who were in their 60s, you know, later, somewhat later in life. And that was really a factor of just, you know, having a longer time for of exposure to the to the you know, the risky effects of, of tobacco and alcohol. With HPV, we're seeing these cancers younger and younger. And so the peak age of these cancers is actually in their 40s. I mean, we see, you know, at all ages, we can see younger and older, but it, it definitely is happening in younger patients. And I think that that's so critical for people to really understand because, um, uh, being in my 40s, I can tell you that you do kind of feel invincible, right? Um, uh, you're healthy. Um, you, you don't really need to go to the doctor. Everything's good. Um, and you certainly don't think you're going to get cancer, um, but it, it can occur. That's so true. And so often people's in their in their 40s are busy with life. You know, they've got jobs yeah. and whatever it is. And they don't so they have time for cancer. They don't, have, they don't have time for this. So they're even that less likely to go get it checked out because they're just too busy because they're in the, you know, right in the midst of, you know, life. Yeah. No, that's for sure. Um, what are the other other symptoms that that people should look for? I mean, a, a painless lump in the neck um, is certainly something that that should be a red flag for people, even though it's painless. And I think that's the other thing is that people say, you know, if it's not causing me pain, it can't be bad. But but we know that so many cancers um, that that's simply not the case. That's right. I think, you know, the uh, some of the other things that uh, are other ways that this can these cancers can present is 
is the is is as a as a, is as a pain. <laughs> so one of the symptoms, potential symptoms, is a sore throat uh, or pain or difficulty with swallowing. You know, we obviously this happens to all of us as a result of an infection or <laughs> tonsillitis or something like that. But if that persists for more than three to four weeks, that is another reason to you know, see, see, seek medical attention. Um, similarly, hoarseness of voice, again, usually not cancer. Uh, we all get that at one point or another, but if it persists for more than four weeks, that probably makes sense to seek medical attention for that as well. Yeah. It seems like the, that four week mark is really um, when people should start saying, you know, this isn't just something that you get out of the blue. If it's been persistent, it's really something that you need to look for. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, just uh, the the other symptoms, I think, you know, I, I had a friend um, who uh, had a nosebleed, really young guy, 20, 22 years old. I think you um, you may have heard about him because I, I sent him to you um, uh, who presented with a nosebleed. Um, so simple things like like that, you know, you think, you know, it's a, a nosebleed, um, but but things like that can can happen. Yeah, I think, you know, it sort of goes back to what we we're talking about before. It's the, the, you know, patients who are young and healthy and feel fine. They're more likely to sort of blow off these things. And, you know, most likely, you know, usually a nosebleed is, you know, 99% of the time it's nothing. But I think that, you know, sometimes it's something. And so it, it is just a reminder if something is not going away or not getting better, you know, certainly worth worth yeah. having someone take a look. And sometimes those somethings are really bad somethings, like it happened to be in my friend. So talk a little bit about the prognosis for head and neck cancers. And I realize that, again, it's a heterogeneous um, bucket of, of diseases. But um, in general, um, how do people fare? It, as you mentioned, it varies. You know, it varies on the type, the specific type and, and the stage at which they present. So all the more reason to come come in and get it checked out and found earlier if there is something going on. Um, you know, interestingly, the prognosis with HPV related cancers is much better um, than with the the other types of head and neck cancers that we see, like, for example, the smoking, drinking related cancers. So the vast majority of patients with HPV related cancers are cured. Um, you know, cure rates are in the 70 to 90 percent rate. Um, there are certainly side effects from treatment. And so, um, you know, it's our goals really are to, you know, to maximize that cure, but also to really try to minimize the side effects of any treatment. Yeah. And so, um, so given that, um, you know, the, the, the prognosis um, can be, uh, you know, across the board, it can be varied, it can be very good, it can be not so good. Um, talk a little bit about uh, treatments. Now, granted, treatments are going to vary based on whether this is found at an early stage or whether it is spread and metastatic. Um, but on this show, we frequently talk about personalized medicine, about a multidisciplinary approach, about all of the things that um, have evolved over time that can improve um, treatment and patients' outlooks. Um, so how do you approach uh, patients who have head and neck cancer? Well, one part of this that I'm just passionate about is that I, I, it's so 
apparent to me working in this field that patients, how patients do depends on the team that's around them. And so, you know, I'm a surgeon and uh, that's one potential treatment uh, for a patient. Other treatments are chemotherapy or immunotherapy or radiation. Uh, but there's also, it's critical to have a nutritionist, a speech and language pathologist, a physical therapist, you know, a social worker, all part of the team. And it really, you know, how people do depends on having that whole, you know, team around the patient uh, to help get them through. And, you know, that's one, having the team is key. And then, as you said, just carefully tailoring, uh, you know, treatments for each patient based on the specifics of what's going on with them and their situation is just key. So, so talk a little bit about that. I mean, we've, we've, we talk on the show a lot about how there have been advances in various t- tumor types. Um, and to differing degrees, right? Um, so in some cancers, you know, they, they look at, you know, panels of hundreds of, of gen- genetic and genomic mutations and, and have targeted therapies for each of these. In others, it's not quite so advanced in terms of tailoring therapies. The idea, of course, being that, you know, with a more targeted therapy, you can potentially um, reduce some of the, the side effects of treatment. So given what you had said earlier about the side effects of therapy, where are we in terms of um, personalized medicine um, in head and neck cancer? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. So one of the areas where personalized medicine really, um, you know, is uh, common day to day in treating patients in this area is that patients with with HPV related cancers are now being treated differently than the other cancers. We know that the responses and the prognosis are is different. And so now the, you know, the treatments are, are different as well. And, you know, the like so much in medicine, they're just constant advances. You know, we're doing transoral robotic surgery, and now patients have the potential to get immunotherapy potentially as part of their treatment. And so they're just, there's just, you know, there's more targeted uh, radiation treatment. So it's just, it's constantly evolving. And each, you know, we're seeing an overall gradual improvement, slow, <laughs> slow, but gradual improvement in prognosis. And I think it's all a result of all these little incremental, you know, steps and improvements along the way. Dr. Benjamin Judson is a professor of surgery and otolaryngology and the chief of the Division of Otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.